Welcome to Season 2 of the Preoccupation Podcast. This season explores the mid to late 19th century of Ottoman Palestine, and, uh, and it takes us on a journey with stops in Istanbul, Beirut, Damascus, Baghdad, and, of course, everywhere in Palestine. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, first of all, thank you. You can do so by following the link in the episode description. You can also find me on Instagram at preoccupationpod. Otherwise, enjoy. Jerusalem has long been the focal point of the still unsolved problem of Palestine. There is no Palestine, no Palestinians. There never was, there never will be. For the last few years, I have been reading about and researching the history of Palestine almost as a full-time job. And pretty early on, I noticed two trends that present a problem for the way that we have come to understand Palestine today. The first is that there is a telling of Palestinian history that is viewed through the eyes of either Zionist settlers or British colonial officials or just as bad, a kind of reductive Palestinian history that is little more than a countdown to the eventual ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in 1948. Nearly every 45-minute to three-hour English-language documentary special, even one that aims to be objective or fair, tends to rely very little on Palestinian voices or Palestinian sources or on the Palestinian experience outside of the conflict with the Zionist movement. But there is another, less nefarious, admittedly, but still problematic trend that I have noticed. Too much of the literature surrounding Palestine presents the events in Palestine in a narrative that either intentionally or unintentionally isolates Palestine from the broader trends of the region, and actually at the world writ large, I can imagine that this is done usually for the sake of simplicity. I mean, sometimes publishers and producers just want to tell you the story of what happened in, <laughs> in a village and, and not turn it into the history of the world, right? Or even worse, the history of the universe. As I look back on season one, I started to ask myself, though, whether I was guilty of this as well. I don't have producers, I don't have a publisher, I don't, have an, I don't even have an editor. <laughs> I just get to have fun doing my own research. And the more research I do, the more I have come to the conclusion that the best way to understand Palestine and what transpired in it is by understanding the region in which the crucial events in Palestine's history took place. Every time 
I pull at a thread in Palestine. It often leads me somewhere else, outside of Palestine. And naturally, it often led me to Istanbul. This is a long way of me telling you that you need to settle in and prepare for a few hours of late Ottoman history. Palestine was an organic part of the Ottoman whole, and understanding what was happening in the Ottoman Empire at this time is a crucial component of understanding Palestine's past, present, and future. So here we go. Listeners who have been tuning in with a critical ear may have noticed that I have not, up to this point, spoken of the Ottoman Empire as a colonial force in Palestine. And while I stand by that, it probably deserves at least a bit of an explanation. For 300 years, the Ottoman Empire essentially exchanged taxes for protection, while also bolstering up a widely utilized legal infrastructure, mostly for its Muslim subjects, though it is worth noting that Christian and Jewish Arabs also frequently use the Sharia courts. For the most part, the indigenous communities of the Arabic-speaking part of the empire really ruled themselves. And the further you went out from the major urban centers, the lighter the footprint of the Ottoman boot. One interesting source here to just kind of help you visualize what I'm describing is uh, James Finn. He was the first British consul to set up shop in Jerusalem. Uh, he had a very tense relationship with the notables of Jerusalem, and most notably, the Husseinis hated him. But in the mid-19th century, Finn had this to say about the Ottoman presence in Palestine. Quote, The yoke of subjection to Turkey did not press heavily upon village population. The Fellahin of Palestine suffered to govern themselves pretty much as they liked. End quote. Now he went on to say this about Nablus in particular. Quote, The Turkish visible government at this time, 1853 is what he's describing, in the Nablus district was barely a mere scarecrow with scarce any terrors. There was just not enough power for the levying of taxes. End quote. Unlike other colonial enterprises of the time, the Ottomans had no similar civilizing mission in mind when it came to their subject populations. They did not care about the identity of the Muslims or non-Muslim subject populations. Simple as that. And by, and by that, I do mean that they did not care about how those subject populations thought of themselves and what stories they told to make sense of themselves and their place in the world. As, uh, as historian Usama Maqdisi writes in his book, The Age of Coexistence, quote, Until the 19th century, the idea of improving and civilizing imperial subjects per se was absent from Ottoman political thought. Though assuring the security, well-being, and tranquility of tax-paying subjects and the maintenance of roads and communication were essential attributes of a legitimate ruler. There was certainly no notion of citizenship or political equality. Instead, emphasis lay 
in the status quo of an Islamic order already achieved, which had to be defended and regulated. End quote. The Ottomans who came to rule the Arabic-speaking world in 1517, they came to a world that was already overwhelmingly Muslim with Christian and Jewish minorities and a scattering of heterodox Muslim minorities as well. I say heterodox from the perspective of the Sunni Muslim majority Orthodox community. I mean, they arrived in and maintained a world where Islamic understandings of knowing and being dominated the public space. And all of this was about to change. Something I have not dedicated a serious amount of time to up to this point is the way in which the disparate faith communities interacted with each other and with the empire. Up to this point, we haven't really addressed the question of religious coexistence, of religious tolerance, of diversity, of pluralism. There have been a few references to Christian and Jewish communities in Palestine, but as a overall project, it's not really something that we've that we've discussed at all. Definitely not in any meaningful detail anyway. But I actually can't put this off for any longer because understanding the answers to these questions, understanding these frameworks and structures within the Ottoman universe, this is essential to understanding what happens next in and around Palestine. See, something that you have to know is this. Up until the rise of America, the Ottoman Empire was, for hundreds of years, the most ethnically and religiously diverse empire the world had ever seen. And in the 19th century, this diversity, as well as the Ottoman Empire's generally decentralized approach to rule, were both subjects of scorn and mockery in Western Europe. In the eyes of the British, the French, the Russians, I mean, that is the, the source of the mockery and scorn, a clear idea had formed by this point of how a civilized community should be structured. From the European perspective of the time, the Ottoman Empire was defective. And it was defective in two very important ways. Firstly, a civilized society is one in which authority is centralized and violence is monopolized in a single institution, the state. Only a regressive backwater run by barbarians would have a decentralized power structure where tribes and clans can rule themselves. That is how the thinking went in Europe. That part, I think, is pretty easy to understand because we have many of those prejudices today. We think of state actors as having more legitimacy than non-state actors, and we know that the progress that comes with capitalism requires state levels of control in order to build large-scale infrastructural projects that may not be in the best interest of the specific people you are taxing. All of this I've spoken about before, so I won't spend any more time on it, but you get the idea. And so therein lies 
one major point of contention between the Ottoman Empire and the great powers of Europe. The second, though, this one's not as obvious. In the Europe of the time, the idea was emerging that the legitimacy of the ruler is rooted in their representation of this vague group called the people. Now, representing the people does not or did not necessarily mean running an electoral democracy. And even if you had some elections, it definitely did not mean universal suffrage the way that we understand it today. The idea was just so much more basic than that. So let me explain this by unpacking a few things. Right now, in our present time, as I'm recording this, you have a very good idea of what I mean when I say the people. I mean, you probably think of something similar or outright synonymous with the citizens. But the concept of peoplehood itself was relatively new in the 19th century. Prior to the explosion of nationalist thought in that time period, when a king referred to his people, he didn't mean it in the way that a president or a prime minister may mean it today. A king's people in the 16th century meant the people he taxes and subsequently has to protect. It basically meant his tax farm. As historian Shlomo Sand illustrates in quite powerful terms, quote, So long as human societies were dominated by the principles of divine kingship, Rather than by the will of the people, rulers did not need their subjects' love. Their principal concern was to make sure they had enough power to keep people afraid. The sovereign had to secure the loyalty of the state's administration in order to preserve the continuality and stability of the government. But the peasants were required simply to pass along the surplus agricultural produce and sometimes to provide the monarchy and the nobility with soldiers. Taxes were of course collected by force, or at any rate by its constant implicit threat, rather than by persuasion or efforts at consensus." End quote. Now with that in mind, consider this for a moment. Through the mid to late 19th century, the royal families of Britain, Prussia, Russia, Greece, Spain, and a few other countries were all cousins. This was part of Queen Victoria's grand vision for Europe and her plan for a European peace. The various royal families of Europe were all the children and grandchildren of Queen Victoria. So at that time, there are territories all across Europe where masses of people are being ruled by royals who are not indigenous to the places they rule. And in many of these places, the royal families did not speak the same language as their subject populations. I mean, let's take Imperial Russia, for example. The language of the royal court was French. The language of the middle rank bureaucracy German. Russian was the language of millions of destitute peasants. Now this mattered very little when royals were thought to rule by divine right. The strong will do what they can, the weak will suffer what they must. 
But if legitimacy is rooted in the government's representation of the people, and if the state should manifest this will of the nation, it would be really weird if the head of state was a foreigner, right? So two things needed to happen in this transition from empire to nation-state. First, the sovereign needed to become part of the nation. And to this end, various royal families of Europe underwent what was essentially a nationalization process, becoming members of the nation, or rather, heads of that nation. The second thing that needed to happen is that the disparate groups of people that live within a territory that will one day encompass the state should, for their part, constitute one nation. One people telling one story, living out one vision, and preferably speaking one language. This is how civilized people act, said Europe. So to summarize that then, a civilized society by European standards, or the European standards of the time, was one where violence is monopolized in a single institution, the state, and wherein the state rules over a single nation, upon which the sovereign rules as part of the nation and by the will of the nation. Well, as I made very clear in past episodes, the Ottoman Empire was neither a state with an uncontested monopoly on violence within its domain, nor was there an Ottoman nation within its borders. And this was viewed in Europe as a civilizational failure. One source that I relied on very heavily in preparing for this season was uh, Andrew Dilatola's book, Civilization and the Making of the State in Syria and Lebanon. And he captures this very well. He writes, quote, The position that the European state was advanced and the Ottoman Empire was immature placed the Ottoman Empire on a linear continuum with the modern state in Europe. To be considered equal to European states, the Ottoman Empire, as well as other polities in the global south, had to accede to a set of European benchmarks that exemplified their abandonment of irrational, disordered, and pre-modern forms of governance, authority, and life. End quote. This view of the Ottoman Empire as backward and defective held right up until the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, and honestly, in many ways, continues right to this very day, a century after the empire's collapse. By way of example, Gertrude Bell, a British traveler in the early 20th century, had this to say about the Ottoman Empire. Quote, No country which turned to the eye of the world an appearance of established rule and centralized government was, to, to a greater extent than the Ottoman Empire, a land of make-believe. End quote. A land of make-believe. You know, in the first episode of this podcast, I said that all 
political institutions, all nation-states, they're effectively imaginary. They're all kind of social constructs. What she meant by that is that the Ottoman Empire has an even more illusory sense of empire. There was no state, no nation, no influence in the way that she understood it, and therefore no real empire. Now that was in the early 20th century, but in the late 20th century, historian David Fromkin had this to say, quote, the empire was incoherent. Its Ottoman rulers were not an ethnic group, though they spoke Turkish, and the empire subjects a, a wide variety of peoples speaking Turkish, Semitic Kurdish, Slavic, Armenian, Greek, and other languages, had little in common with, and in many cases, little love for one another. Though European observers later were to generalize about, for example, Arabs, in fact, Egyptians and Arabians, Syrians and Iraqis were people of different history, ethnic backgrounds, and outlook. The multinational, multilingual empire was a mosaic of people who did not mix. End quote. So you can see here that, to use Fromkin's words, the incoherence of the empire is something that the West views and continues to view with some level of distaste. The sense that you get when you read a passage like the one that I just read is that Muslim rule, well, the Muslims ruled without rhyme or reason. But this is far from true. Despite Europe's condescending view of the Ottoman Empire, both the rulers of the empire, as well as their indigenous subjects, already had some ideas in place about what coexistence and governance should look like. It's not like the Ottomans and the people of Palestine never thought about these things. To explain how the Ottomans addressed the subject of diversity, I'm going to ask you to think about a few questions. And here's the first of a few major questions I'm going to ask you throughout this podcast. Is pluralism a problem that needs to be solved? Is pluralism a problem that needs to be solved? Well, for hundreds of years, the Ottoman answer to that question was no. You see, on the one hand, the thinking of the Ottoman Empire was that pluralism and diversity could actually add something to the Ottoman Melu. Historian Karen Barkley writes, quote, The Ottoman understanding, similar to the Roman conception, was that difference was tolerated because it had something to contribute. That is, difference added to the empire, it did not detract from it, and therefore it was commended. Toleration had a systemic quality, maintaining peace and order was good for imperial life, and diversity contributed to imperial welfare. End quote. In diversity, the Ottomans saw economic opportunities with religious communities outside of the Sultan's realm. But the Ottomans also had their own race science that justified their maintenance of a pluralistic society. So, for example, they believed that 
uh, strength and beauty came predominantly from the Christian European parts of the empire, but piety and intellect were to be found in the Muslim realms. They believed things like this. But in addition to all of that, diversity was not a problem because, as I mentioned earlier, the identity of the subject populations was not of any particular interest to the high port in ruling over their Christian and Jewish subject millets. That's what they called the nations, millets. The Ottomans institutionalized the Orthodox Church and the rabbinate as arms of the empire and essentially allowed those religious communities to manage their own affairs within the Ottoman legal framework. So that is within the Sharia framework. So Christian and Jewish communities were granted independent private spheres in a world where the public sphere of the empire was Islamic and the Muslims were the preferred millet. But even that probably doesn't fully capture what life was actually like for Muslims, Christians, and Jews who lived side by side. In my first draft of this episode, I had a long technical explanation planned out, and through that I hope to kind of paint for you the structures behind the intercommunal cohesion and tensions. And Anyway, partway I kind of realized that a, most of you probably don't. <laughs> most of you probably don't care for that kind of thing. But B, it actually isn't all that useful in helping the average listener understand how people of different faith groups actually interacted. And so instead, I thought that I'd try to convey the truth of the situation, the, the truth of the quality of intercommunal relations, by way of a few examples. See, the quality of intercommunal relations has less to do with laws, edicts, and even religion than many of us may imagine. So I want you to suppose this. If you want to understand how people live, just, just try to imagine this. Suppose that you are like myself. So you're a Canadian who's a resident of Vancouver and you're of Palestinian origin. And you take a job teaching English in Japan. And when you arrive in Tokyo, you're surprised to meet another Canadian teacher, one who's also from Vancouver, but who is of Vietnamese ancestry. Now, in the sea of English teachers, you immediately hit it off with this other Canadian teacher. Now, there's somebody else in the staff who comes from a country where there are very, very tense ethno-linguistic relations. This other teacher notices that you and the Vietnamese Canadian teacher get along really well, despite the fact that you have different ethno-linguistic origins. So, your non-Canadian co-worker may ask, how is it that you two get along so well? When you offer your colleague an explanation, would it cross your mind to say, well, you know, in Canada, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms stipulates that everyone is entitled to blah, 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 blah. You would never say this. It just would not cross your mind because that simply is not the way in real life we understand intercommunal relations. You would probably say something like, look, 
My town has people from many different cultures. I went to school with people of all different races and different religions. There is a Vietnamese restaurant behind my house. I eat there twice a month and so on and so on. You would talk about your experiences. Yes, Islam was the basis for inter intercommunal tolerance. This is undoubtedly true. But the quality of intercommunal relations in the Ottoman Empire did not depend so much on the laws, which were always hard to enforce, as they did on what some historians call the raising or lowering of future expectations. People's willingness to engage with their sectarian, ethno-linguistic others depended largely on whether they expected those interactions to be fair and pleasant in the future. If diversity was a problem to be solved, its solution then was rarely to be found in the mind of the Sultan. Intercommunal relations lived and died in the markets, on the streets, in caravanserais, in places where there were many interactions, there was a greater possibility for nuanced and positive interactions. Now to say that the reality of intercommunal harmony could be found at the local level does not mean that the Ottoman Empire at the very highest level had no philosophical assumptions regarding the management of this diversity. And this brings us to another question. What is the best way to manage a disparate group of individuals, or ethno-linguistic groups, or religions, or sects? And here we discover two modes, or two approaches, that distinguished the Ottoman Empire from the Europe of the time. To explain this, I'm going to use an inappropriately modern analogy. The emergence of the European nation-state can be thought of like a new operating system that came with a bunch of legacy software applications from previous systems, like Christian mythology, Enlightenment philosophy, Darwinism, capitalism, racial hierarchies that were unique to Europe's perspective. So when the nation-state was gradually adopted across Europe, many of its adherents had been running these apps that came with that nation-state for decades or even centuries and worked into each national story of the new nation-states was a principle that emerges from a collection of these applications. And that is the principle of equality. Equality in this case was the idea that citizens, no longer merely subjects of the sovereign, but citizens of the nation, are equal. The second line of the American Declaration of Independence states as much, expressing boldly that all men are created equal. This principle of equality is one of the normative truths that form the foundation of most Western liberal democracies. Well, for nearly the entire Ottoman period, equality was never even considered as a goal, let alone a desired outcome. 
Rather, it was the principle of tolerance that defined the relationship between disparate groups. In the European tradition, the principle of equality obviously did not result in societies void of racism or discrimination as we understand discrimination and racism today. It just meant that the presence of the other in your midst presented a glitch that needed to be overcome. So, in America, if all men are created equal, simple. Black slaves and indigenous peoples are not men. They'll just have to be redefined as something else. This is just one example. A more contemporary glitch, though, in this equality matrix is playing out before us in modern France, where Muslims make up something like 5-10% to of the population, but in the name of equality, these Muslims are being put under an immense pressure to assimilate. This is often met with absolute disbelief from Muslims around the world who scream at the top of their lungs that under Islamic rule in Al-Andalus or the Ottoman Empire, churches could ring their bells, Jews could wear the clothes of their faith, they could be as Christian as they wanted or as Jewish as they wanted, unmolested. And as one historian writes, quote, where equality, as it was conceived of in Europe in the 19th century, was limited to individuals with a static set of identity markers, white, male, landowning, tolerance provided access to institutions and resources without requiring specific and particular identity markers. End quote. So what that meant was that even if you were conceived of as the other, Within a system predicated upon tolerance, you could still access the privileges, resources, and benefits of the state. The caveat, though, is that such tolerance existed in a society where equality and a single national identity was never the end goal. There is simply no doubt that Christian and Jewish inhabitants of the late Ottoman Empire constituted legally recognized separate communities and that the Muslims were, to use the language of the Ottoman Empire, the preferred millet. The non-Muslims could rise to great heights, and many did, such as the Sabahs and the Farhis, but they did so in a world where the systems and structures of the public sphere reflected the Islamic worldview and Islamic laws. The fact of the matter is that both equality and tolerance as overarching themes have a long history of successes and failures. But in reality, the approach matters very little when times are good. And perhaps I could demonstrate this by way of example. And honestly, it's not the best example, but in a contemporary context, it's the best that I can do. If you look at a country like the United Arab Emirates, 80% of the population are foreign workers. I know that Westerners prefer the term expat, but fun fact, if you live in Dubai and you are not a local, you're a foreign worker. You're the same as the Pakistanis and the Indians and the Bengalis and the Arabs. Well, if you work in a place like Dubai, you know full well that you are not equal. You may benefit from the protection of your embassy, if you are from the West at least, but at the end of the day, 
your grandfather could have been born in Dubai. Your great-grandfather could have been born in Dubai, and you will never be equal. And yet, many people choose to live there instead of places where they are equal because they like the lifestyle and the money is good. Remember what I said earlier about the expectations of future interactions. So long as the good times keep rolling, and you expect the good times to keep rolling, both equality and tolerance are able to produce compliance. Well, by the 1820s, the good times were a distant memory in the Ottoman Empire. And yet for a while, things just kept ticking on. The millet system worked as it was supposed to. The empire continued to be the massive home of dozens of ethno-linguistic groups belonging to a wide variety of faith traditions, with the Islamic faith as the official faith of public space. It took one event to bring down this house of cards, an event that I've already briefly mentioned, and that event is the Greek Revolt. The Greek Revolt, which I discussed at the beginning of the final episode of Season 1, did not erupt in a vacuum. It was, in many ways, a reflection of the problem I've already been discussing for most of this episode. It was a response to the question, is it better to live as an unequal but tolerated subject in the Ottoman Empire, or to form a new ethnically homogenous, ethno-linguistic nation under a new story. And there are at least two things that made the latter an attractive option. One is the gradual decline of the Ottoman Empire's territorial integrity at this point. By the 1820s, the Ottoman Empire is being massively outperformed on the battlefield. And the second thing that made Greek separatism both attractive and viable was the unimaginable scale of European intervention in the Ottoman Empire at this time. It is true that the inception of the Greek revolt appears to be at least as organic as every other national movement of the time. It's the product of urbanization, industrialization, print capitalism, and all the rest. All of those ingredients were there. But its success was secured with the intervention of the great powers of Europe. And without their intervention, their success would not have been possible. Now, what's really significant here is the fact that the Greek revolt was being written into the story of the new Europe. For those of us who grew up in the West, we're familiar with the story of Western civilization that traces its roots back to ancient Greece. Well, the construction of this story emerges in the 19th century. And so an independent Greek nation was, in European eyes, the liberation of the cradle of Western civilization. There was a problem. The Greeks at this point were not as illiterate, as industrialized, as urbanized as their Western European counterparts. And the great powers of Europe knew exactly who to blame for that. As one source puts it, quote, 
This origin story placed Greece at the beginning of Western civilization, noting it as the birthplace of philosophy and democracy. Support for Greek independence marked the beginning of the 19th century European interventions in Ottoman affairs, was justified as support for an enlightened civilization, one that had been shrouded in darkness under Turkish and Muslim rule, but could enter political modernity with ease following their release from the oppressive fanatical authority of the sublime port." End quote. The success of the Greek revolt and the liberation of allegedly oppressed Christians from the boot of tyrannical Muslim rule really poured fuel onto the fire of the Eastern question that was mentioned in the season finale of the last season. The desire to lay claim to the various Jewish and Christian communities within the Ottoman Empire was followed by a massive uptick in the levels of intervention of the great powers such as France, Britain, and Russia. This intervention was ostensibly to protect the Christian communities living within the Ottoman Empire, whom were, who were increasingly being referred to in the language of the 19th century as unique races that lived among Muslim peoples. Just so you could understand what I'm implying there, what I'm saying is that in the European perspective of the time, the Orthodox Christian living in Palestine or the Maronite living in Mount Lebanon were not just people of a unique religious community, they were racially separate from their Muslim neighbors. Now, by this stage, Europe could now intervene at will, and this intervention took two forms. In places where one of the European great powers had established a widely recognized sphere of influence over the local Christian or Jewish community, colonialism took the form of an old-fashioned steamroller manned by soldiers and equipped with bayonets and cannons. In contested regions of the Ottoman Empire, that type of European colonialism would trigger wars and conflicts between European powers, and so more subversive efforts at domination were present, such as the proliferation of missionary schools, and that's something I'm going to discuss in another episode. But unsurprisingly, the Ottoman Empire was now scrambling to find a way to get this European bear, or rooster or lion, pick whichever analogy you want, wanted to get European great power influence off of its back. The Ottoman Empire was also determined to recapture the territories lost to Muhammad Ali Pasha's Khedival regime. And were I to just stop here, I think we could all agree that this is a pretty terrible situation for the high port. And yet this is not where the Ottoman Empire's challenges ended. While the Ottoman Empire faced the enormous weight of European pressure from the outside, inside the Ottoman Empire, the Sultan found himself under an entirely different type of pressure. I spent several episodes last season speaking about the different strongmen that ruled Palestine between the 17th and early 19th centuries. And this era is sometimes referred to as the era of strongmen. In fact, it's referred to that, uh, referred to as that by historians. And I mentioned at that time that this system of rule emerged, at least initially, 
from an Ottoman disinterest in local administration. Now, later on, it was an Ottoman inability to control the peripheries that allowed the system to continue. Zahir al-Umar, Jazar Pasha, all of the strongmen of Akka were products of this era. Well, as we saw with Jazar in particular, tyranny was becoming increasingly commonplace. Tyranny in the form of summary executions, punitive justice, abuses of power, all of these things took place during the era of strongmen. And leading into the mid-19th century, tyranny had apparently gotten worse. All of this in a land where the Sharia was meant to prevent these kinds of abuses of power. But these abuses were increasing at a time, and probably proportionally, to the Ottoman Sultan's inability and powerlessness to, impre to impress upon his governors the importance of obeying the Sharia. No one was more upset with this sorry state of affairs than the Islamic scholars themselves, the ulama. By the 1830s, the Islamic scholars of the Ottoman Empire had found themselves several times over in the crosshairs of the high port. Sultan Selim III's reforms had aimed to curtail their power spe specifically and the decimation of the Janissaries, the traditional allies of the ulama, saw their influence wane even further. But by the 1830s, a group of ulama, a group of Islamic scholars, were making a resurgence. And to understand their return to the corridors of power, you have to understand the institutions that they occupied. Thomas Edward Lawrence, famous Lawrence of Arabia, he wrote that Arabs believe in people, not institutions. But what he failed to recognize were the plethora of indigenous institutions that existed throughout the Arab and Muslim world. So the Diwan, for example, is an example of a tribal institution. It is an official meeting place where the tribe meets to discuss the affairs and issues of the tribe. And the ulama, they had their own institutions in the 19th century that they belonged to. And the most significant type of religious institution was the Sufi tariqa, the Sufi order. And no Sufi order was more important in the mid-19th century than the Naqshbandi order. I promise I'm not going to turn this into a long commentary about the unique beliefs and practices of the Naqshbandi or their origins as a spiritual order. That's for a different podcast at a different time. Our focus here in this story only involves one piece of their story. The only part that's particularly relevant that I want to focus on is that the Naqshbandi had developed a belief that it was an important, praiseworthy, and noble act of worship to guide those in power. 
And guiding those in power was not low-hanging fruit in terms of acts of worship. You couldn't just knock, you couldn't just knock on the Sultan's door and sell your ideas at the gates of the high port. So instead, over the course of a hundred years, we talk about playing the long game, over the course of a hundred years, the Naqshbandi brethren took up posts teaching and lecturing and delivering sermons in mosques around Istanbul. And as their popularity grew, the power brokers of the empire gradually sought them out, not the other way around. And this time, some of the most notable followers of the Naqshbandi order included the wives and mothers of sultans. Through this unprecedented access to the highest levels of power, the Naqshbandi order garnered the attention of several sultans and those closest to them. In closed meetings, away from the hustle and bustle of public life, these ulama expressed to the sultan the moral decay and degradation sweeping through the empire to which they had a front row seat via their tentacles of various lodges and orders all over the empire. They saw tyranny at the hands of corrupt governors, foreign missionaries acting with impunity, and the solution to it all, they whispered, was a return to the implementation of the Sharia. There must be justice in the lands ruled by the Sultan, and for there to be justice, the Sultan must regain control. And it is in this geopolitical pressure cooker with the tentacles of Europe slowly curling around the gates of the high port and powerful ulama whispering into the ears of the sultan that the empire decided to embark on a series of reforms. These reforms became known as the Tanzimat, the reorganization. In some ways, the Tanzimat would go on to redefine everything people knew about what it meant to belong to a place. And yet, even this genuine attempt at reform was not enough to save the Ottoman Empire from colonialism. When we return, the Ottoman Empire will be gearing up to oust Muhammad Ali Pasha from Greater Syria. The Palestinians who in 1834 desired nothing more than a return to normalcy, will discover that their lives have changed forever.